Hello, everyone. This is Sean Dubrovac from Avrio Institute. And this is Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Techspansive. Uh, we're going to dive into a couple of topics this week. First, taking a look at HoloLens and HoloLens 2, which was recently announced. Ross, lucky enough to uh, try that out recently, so we'll hear from him. And then we'll dive into some Facebook news. There is always Facebook news, it seems. So we'll <laughs> Usually not good. Usually. Lately, certainly yeah. lately, it has not been good. Lately uh, for, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, we'll cover that. And then uh, we'll uh, hit lightning round where we'll talk a little bit about Huawei, a new foldable phone that fits on your wrist, and Tim Apple. <laughs> So with that, Ross, why don't we dive into HoloLens and tell us what you thought. Tell us a little bit about uh, your experience. So this was uh, the HoloLens 2 uh, was announced at um, uh, MWC Barcelona, which is the new official name for Mobile World Congress, the big uh, wireless show in Barcelona, of course. And uh, it was a long time coming. They first introduced HoloLens three years ago. It was a groundbreaking product. Uh, and then we didn't hear anything about a sequel for a long time. Apparently, one of the efforts, uh, interim efforts, was canceled. And they finally announced uh, HoloLens 2, which will be shipping later this year. And the, uh, the biggest changes, uh, so first of all, let me say right off the bat, uh, this was definitely worth the wait. And it is a major upgrade uh, in terms of uh, functionality and uh, really shows how Microsoft is retaining the lead uh, in, this, uh, in this category, this nascent category, uh, and building on that lead. So I would say that the two, I mean, they talked about the comfort of the headset. Okay, that's important. But I would say from an experiential perspective, the two biggest changes are uh, field of view, uh, which we can talk about in a minute, and the proximity with which you can, uh, at which you can approach and interact with the hologram. So if you've seen video of people using the HoloLens, it looks as if they are surrounded by these digital objects all around them that are in full view and full size. And very often these things are very large and several people are uh, gathered around them. But uh, when you put on the original HoloLens, it was almost like looking through a tube, you know, a, a square tube. Uh, you only got to see a, a very small part of the holog hologram. And so uh, you could either... You know, you could only see relatively small holograms all at once. And then as soon as kind of you turned your head, it disappeared. And so uh, I guess a couple of months ago, I saw a very cool demo of an office collaboration tool called Spatial. Uh, that uses augmented reality. Uh, and, you know, there's all this cool stuff going on with people taking uh screens out of their laptop and throwing notes against the wall and I'm moving my head around kind of like Michael Cohn at the congressional hearing trying to figure out you know who's speaking and what's going on because uh, the field of view is so small. So that has been radically increased uh, on HoloLens 2 to the point where you, you've got basically a, a large movie screen 
kind of area in front of your face. Now, things can still be lost in the periphery of your vision, but uh, now you can see pretty substantial holograms. Uh, I would describe them as kind of like the width of your body, basically, uh, all at once, uh, up close. And then the other thing is that you can get close to them. Um, there are some limits, but as you approached a hologram with the original HoloLens, it would disappear. And Microsoft explained uh, that they were a little too conservative in that calculation. <clears throat> so now they've expanded that. Uh, and so it allows you to get pretty close up to these things and interact with them very intuitively. Uh, it recognizes your hands. And so as you approach one of these things, you see these uh, controls appear on them. Intuitively, you can interact with them the way you would objects on a screen. You can expand them. You can shrink them. You can rotate them. You can place them over to the side. You can walk to the other part of the room. You come back, and they're right where you left them. Uh, and then there are other uh, things that it can do. It is very good at eye tracking. So, for example, if you are, and again, consider the market for this thing, uh, some, you know, working on a factory repair of some component, uh, and you have some documentation up, you can automatically scroll that document just by looking at the bottom of it, and it will continue to scroll. Uh, it also includes uh, speech recognition, so you can issue verbal commands, and the whole purpose is to keep your hands free, right? So what is the difference? You know, why spend maybe $4,000 on this thing as opposed to, say, $500 on an iPad, which can also view holograms uh, or augmented reality that uh, is created with Apple's tools? And the two main differences are, one, allows you to have your hands free, uh, again, particularly if you're working on some industrial task, that can be critical. And the other thing is the ability to uh, really manipulate these things intuitively and in, in 3D in the real world instead of having to use this proxy of a screen that, frankly, you know, becomes tiring to hold uh, after a while. So iPhones, Android phones, I mean, the good news is that all of these mobile products can simultaneously view uh, the same hologram that the HoloLens wearer is, is also seeing, but you just can't compare the experience uh, to have this thing kind of floating in front of you uh, in, in the real world. It is absolutely smacks of something heralding the, the next generation of computing, uh, the, the next exponential leap beyond the the graphical user interface that's been with us you know since at least the mid 80s i mean it's it's that radical a difference now unlike the graphical user interface no one has really built uh, an operating system around this no one has really built a general purpose platform around this so that's uh huge uh that that doesn't exist yet um and it, it's really hold, you know, stands to hold back adoption, as does the price and other things. But but you also have to think about how Microsoft is coming at this, right? They view it as but a component of an enterprise uh, strategy. 
tightly integrated with Dynamics, tightly integrated with Azure, a very different kind of proposition than, say, a company like Magic Leap, uh, which is trying to create a consumer product and, you know, scrambling to uh, line up all these partners to launch this thing as a uh, as a new general platform, I guess, you know, primarily for entertainment. So uh, it's incredible. You know, the HoloLens 2, hats off to Microsoft. There's really nothing else like it out there. Uh, and... Um, you know, they've been the leader and they maintain the leader, but right now it remains an enterprise tool. And frankly, at its price point, that's probably the only way you can justify purchasing one at this point. But super impressive if uh, <laughs> if I didn't convey that. And Ross, where do you see some of the use case scenarios coming into play? I mean, obviously they position it well for the interplay for the enterprise market. Uh, you see use cases in on the factory floor and in warehouse distribution centers. Do you think Microsoft over time will expand beyond that, or are they really sticking to that core audience right now? I, I think for now that is where it's easiest to justify ROI. I mean, they have done all kinds of, shown all kinds of applications for it. They've developed all kinds of demo applications for it. Uh, even consumer apps like games at Build, uh, Microsoft's developer conference a couple of years ago. Uh, there was a, a very cool demo uh, that showed how you could use the HoloLens to, in real time, visualize different uh, aerodynamics of a truck cab and see how that affected the... Uh, uh, the the wind drag for uh, for for mileage, uh, you know, increasing mileage efficiency. So so it definitely has design applications. Uh, I mentioned spatial, which is kind of a next generation work group collaboration uh, kind of uh, a product, kind of a a, a blue jeans uh, or a zoom for uh, for augmented reality. Um, Really, any time that you need to show any kind of model, um, it, it's going to be an excellent tool for that kind of thing. But, but in terms of, again, the ROI, uh, it generally has to be something high stakes uh, because of the price of the tool and the price of developing the content uh, that goes with it. So uh, digital twins uh, in construction where... Uh, the failure to visualize something could result in uh, millions of dollars or, you know, perhaps even uh, safety, you know, the safety of, of human lives, uh, you know, something you're, you're going to want to check. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the cost of deploying somebody to train people. Uh, saving, saving on that kind of expense or, or rather scaling the expertise of people in the organization. So, so they can, uh, work interactively with less experienced people in, in remote locations is a great application. Uh, so, uh, and then of course, you know, medicine. Uh, education, some of the things we've been talking about with 5G, uh, the HoloLens is uh, an excellent complement to to those kinds of things. And again, as I mentioned, uh, particularly with medicine, uh, another kind of application where if you're certainly if you're a surgeon, you're going to want to have your your hands free. 
Yeah. Interesting. Well, it'll be interesting to see, uh, at, you know, the takeoff of that in the years to come. Uh, there's definitely some clear promising value uh, in that. Uh, we also saw other news this week, kind of in that related space, that uh, Apple is rumored to be finally releasing its AR headset sometime between the end of this year and into the first half of, of 2020. The headset will rely on iPhone for rendering and for connectivity. And so um, what were your thoughts on that news, Ross? I mean, it's I mean it, kind of... Go ahead, Sean. It's not, it's not very surprising that <laughs> they would want to rely on the the iPhone for rendering and connectivity, even though uh, you could argue that the iPhone lacks some of the connectivity that you would need. Uh, this is really at the other end of the, the spectrum of, of what HoloLens uh, can deliver from a, a power and connectivity perspective. Right. So, you know, these VR, I'm sorry, these AR headsets are very much, I mean, they're taking different paths, but all of them are in some ways platform extensions. So mm-hmm. HoloLens is built on Windows. It's a Windows product and it connects to Azure. Um, uh, Magic Leap is an Android based product in many ways, although it's a variant. Uh, Google has invested uh, heavily in that, in that product. Uh, and that product uh, has somewhat different architecture in that. The headset is rather lightweight, and you have this little puck that essentially contains the guts of a high-end smartphone uh, that you kind of wear on your belt. So uh, if you're Apple, it makes a lot of sense to say, hey, you know, I've already got very powerful processors in my iPhones, uh, which are extremely popular. So, And I have uh, invested a lot in training uh, or, or helping, you know, many, many developers uh, who understand that ecosystem develop AR applications. So this is almost like the last, you know, the second shoe dropping, you know, to just say, okay, well, you know, we've kind of put all the other pieces of the puzzle in place. This is, this is the kind of the last extension. Now, the one other thing you would want is, Unlike Magic Leap, you know, you, you would want there to be a wireless connection between the headset uh, and the uh, and the iPhone. Uh, and there is technology that's been de- in development for a while that would enable that. It just has not really gone mainstream yet. It's uh, uh, had been 802.11 a x. Uh, now it now it's a x. Uh, before it was. Uh, uh, a A D, yes, eight hundred two eleven A D, yes, and then it jumped <laughs> to eight hundred two eleven A X, and it, it used to be known as Y gig. But but the idea is, it's this super fast, uh, very short range uh, connection uh, between the i that that would exist between the iPhone and uh, and this headset, and the price of these. Chips have been coming down, and Qualcomm is supporting it in all kinds of products. So it, it stands to reason that Apple is getting ready to support it as an extension of Wi-Fi as well, mm-hmm. and that could be a key enabler for for these kinds of products. Yeah, good. Well, we'll see. There's, you know, Apple's been long rumored for years now to be 
imminently coming out with an AR headset. So it'll be interesting to see if they do hit that mark. Um, and, and we've talked about this in the podcast before that, you know, one of the struggles that that companies like Apple will will face moving forward is that they are so dependent right now on a single device. And so they end mm. up extending from, to your point, platform extensions. They're extending from that platform uh, and building off of that, uh, off of the, the core hardware that they want consumers to have in their possession. And I, I think it also plays into something I, I think we discussed last time, uh, which was some of the challenges that VR is facing uh, as there's been all this excitement around augmented reality and mixed reality. So, for example, it had been Samsung's practice whenever they introduced a new Galaxy phone to introduce a new VR headset that, that worked with that phone. Uh, and uh, they did not do that this time when they introduced their new headsets. They're, uh, they don't seem to be moving forward on that. And, uh, you know, we haven't really seen anything from Google, uh, which had been backing a number of VR uh, initiatives. So it seems that the bloom is a bit off the, the VR rose or, or maybe, you know, people are just realizing it, it just doesn't have, at least at this point, that much application outside of gaming. I mean, some of the stuff that I did on HoloLens could probably work quite adequately in a VR environment, but it is just more natural and confidence-inspiring uh, as you interact with these things to have them happen in the familiarity of the real world. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. You- Good. Well, more to come on that, I'm sure. We'll see more of that in, in the coming year. Uh, now let's shift to... Facebook and the news from Facebook. And there's a number of stories out this week. First and foremost, of course, Mark Zuckerberg putting out a uh, post talking about Facebook's pivot to privacy. Mm. And uh, at the same time, we saw an Axios-Harris poll where they looked at the 100 most well-known, top-of-mind companies and then ranked them based upon their reputation. And this was a, a survey. So they're looking at uh, a, a gen pop consumer survey. We saw in that survey, Facebook take the biggest slide, biggest decliner, moving from 43rd place to 94th place on that list of the 100 best known. And, and as we were saying earlier, that is a... Uh... Quite the precipitous drop. Yeah. E- even well, even though it's kind of arbitrary. Yeah, but go ahead. Well, and what's interesting is that it, it is arbitrary, but despite all of the, the negative uh, news around tech companies, and we saw uh, that uh, you know Senator Warner, Senator Warner was uh, talking about the 2020 um, campaign focused on tech and focused on breaking up big tech, if you will, going after essentially everyone that you can think of. And so it'll be interesting to see how tech plays into the to the 2020 um, campaign. Uh, and at the same time, if you look at the list that came out as part of this uh, Axios-Harris poll, there's a number of, of tech companies that have moved up 
and we've seen improvements. Mm-hmm. Samsung moved up 28 points from 30, 35th uh, to 7th. Amazon uh, is near the top of the list. They fell one to second place uh, and were supplanted by Wegmans, which moved up from, from two to one. So in that, uh, that list of also some of the biggest movers, you have Sony moving up 21 points to 10th on the list. You have hmm. companies like LG that moved up uh, 10 points from uh, 25 to 15. So you, you've seen some big uh, moves on the positive side from tech companies, which I think is, is a you know positive sign. It seems like the media focuses so frequently on everything that tech is doing wrong and loves to to hate uh, on tech a little bit, but you you do see that among the general population, there's still really positive sentiment around uh, a number of tech companies. Facebook not being one of them, but uh, right. you, you know you do see that uh, others are are moving up in the list, and even some so, of the the big companies like Google and and Amazon holding their own, Microsoft holding their own. Uh, where they've been over the last year was uh, was Twitter on the list? Uh, that I didn't see Twitter on the okay. list. Um, I did see that Sears fell down further, down <laughs> dropping nine points. So they're ninety seventh on not the list. Not too surprising. Yeah. And, oh, and yeah, sorry. Twitter. Uh, Toys R Us. Oh, Twitter is on the list for the first time. Uh, showing up 89th on the list, so people trust yeah. Twitter marginally more than they trust. Yeah. Uh, or and, and it's but really it's, not a it's trust still not good. measure, but it's a reputation measure. Right. Showing up just a little bit ahead of uh, of Facebook. So to give you a sense of where Facebook falls in, they're one place above Dish and one place <laughs> below Goldman Sachs. They're actually three places below Spirit Airlines, which is uh, probably the most the, indicative. The of, dish of, thing, of, of the dish thing is kind of funny, just because uh, you know these the satellite companies were, of course, launched as uh, alternatives to the cable monopolies that had such a terrible reputation, and uh, you know now. Uh, now at least one of them isn't isn't doing so well in terms of reputation, right? Yeah, so. well, it, I mean, you've got Charter at eighty seventh, you've got Comcast at ninety one, sure, uh, you've got Dish at ninety five. So to your your point, we know these brands and we despise them. <laughs> they're uh, they're birds of a feather at, yeah, at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah, uh, and and uh, you know you've got the Trump org at ninety eighth. Just to put everything <laughs> in perspective. So. <laughs> So uh, yeah, so just getting getting back to tech, uh, you know, I mean, although of course uh, the the Trump org has some association with Tim Apple these days that we'll That's we'll right. talk a little bit about later, uh, but uh, the uh, I think yes, I mean, we think about companies like Facebook and Amazon. I mean, we talk about them in the same breath all the time for a number of reasons uh, because they are you know, valid reasons. They they tend to play in each other's playgrounds a lot, and there's uh, all kinds of interesting <clears throat> competitive and 
partnership dynamics, but but you really can't. Uh, this was something I discovered through some research a, a little while back. You, in terms of public perception, there is there is a huge gap, and uh, you really can't put LG, for example, in the same bucket as, as Facebook uh, or, or really many other tech companies. Um, because uh, also Samsung, I, I wonder how much of that improvement is a result of the recovery from the Note 7 uh, disaster. So, uh, you know, but, um, but the thing is, uh, and I, this is why I asked about Twitter, it definitely comes back to this line in the sand that uh, Tim Cook has talked about, that we've talked about on the podcast about these advertising-driven businesses and the implications on privacy. Uh, and the thing that is always fascinating to me is how positively Google fares uh, in these studies when uh, they essentially have a very similar business model at its core, yes, many, many different details to Facebook. Um, and mm -hmm. I think the difference is that, uh, how I would explain that is that people feel an affinity to Google because they view it as a positive enabler of so much in their lives. You know, beyond a research tool, they have affinity to Google Maps, right? It helps you find things, you know, mm -hmm. they, uh, you know, Android phones, right? You rely on them all day long. Uh, so uh, whereas Facebook, I, I think the issue isn't so much on, in some ways, uh, what's happening kind of behind the scenes, which is where so much of the bad publicity has taken place, but on the value gap on the front end, Right? What's what's the equation? Uh, what 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 do you, what am I getting for giving up my privacy? Uh, and um, Google, I think, just manages that quid pro quo uh, a lot better, or or provides uh, more perceived value uh, to the customer than than Facebook does. And well, and and you know, go ahead, yeah. I I also feel like we're more emotional about Facebook because of because of what it represents. So uh, to your point, yes, Google is a, a huge provider of services to us, whether it's Gmail and Gmail really changed. Uh, another great our, example. Yeah. yeah, our relationship with email. Um, but but the original search bar, I mean, it, you know, the original uh, Google page was a simple bar where you typed in and you and you got the information that you were looking for. And in those early days, you know, it was one of 3,000 different options. You know, you, you didn't have pages and pages of, of potentials, but you had a, a few listings, and it was a, a good way of quickly finding the information you were looking for on the web. And, and so we weren't so emotional about that information, but Facebook is where we go to, you know, see our friends' uh, pictures and to catch up with college roommates. And it's also mm. where lots of people announce that they – have been diagnosed with cancer or that, sure. that a loved one, a mother, a father, a brother has died. And so right. we're often uh, confronted with pretty, I would say, personal and pretty emotional uh, information on Facebook. Yes, there's all of the other things that, that we get from, from Facebook, but uh, I, I think there's also this emotional component that weighs in 
and weighs on our perspective of Facebook. So do you think there's an element of, you know, kill the messenger, uh, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I would say that Facebook will always face this much harder. And this is, I think, the part of the point you were making was Facebook will always uh, face a much harder critic because mm-hmm. of the, the sensitive nature of the information. Whereas, uh, you know, if you think about some of the personal information that we provide Google through any number of the services that we engage in, I mean, our email provides a tremendous amount of insights into what we buy and who we are, when we're online, where we go. Uh, obviously, m- maps, maps tells a yeah. tremendous amount about the type of, of you know, places that we visit, the, the stores G- that we shop at. So G- all of that. Gboard, Gboard is basically anything we're typing. So right, yeah. right. Yeah, everything we're looking for. So, so it's clear that that Google ar- arguably knows more about us than than Facebook. Agreed. Uh, on the surface, though, Facebook has access to some of this very uh, intimate information, um, and so you know, I think that that will always be a, a very tough um, tough thing for Facebook to con- confront, and that's probably motivates some of this privacy focus privacy first perspective that that uh, Facebook is trying to build out this narrative I think the great struggle for them is that yes they see the move towards smaller more intimate networks yes they see the move towards messaging platforms being key over the next decade and so they won't they're really pushing in that direction uh, focused on encryption of messages focusing on Again, these smaller networks. Uh, at the same time, the business is built upon a robust news feed that can sure. can deliver advertising, and so it's hard to imagine where that ever truly becomes uh, a legacy component of of the experience. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree, Sean. And you know, we've talked about them experimenting with different revenue models, but if they're really going to be serious about these intimate communities, it's very difficult to see how that reconciles with their business model. Uh, Harry McCracken, um, our our good friend at uh, Fast Company, uh, wrote a, a very fun, uh, quick article about uh, says don't take Mark Zuckerberg's vision of Facebook's future too seriously, uh, and it's a it's a three minute read. It's it's a fun retrospective of all of these pronouncements that uh, they've made over the past few years that. Uh, Really came to to naught. Uh, every you know stuff, including uh, Facebook's email competitor, uh, Facebook uh, pivoting to a whole video mm-hmm. uh, for the kind of service. Uh, t- Twenty fourteen, yeah, Zuckerberg said in five years most of Facebook will be video. Uh, in 2013, he said uh, people, not apps, and that was the basis of Facebook Home. Uh, which I'm sure almost everyone has forgotten about, uh, a launcher that turned uh, Android into a Facebook-first experience. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's uh, there. There have been there have been definitely some uh, discrepancies between where Mr. Zuckerberg has said Facebook is going and, and where it winds up going. And uh, one other thing I wanted to just toss out there to complement what, what you said about the emotional component, which is that 
I think Facebook is um, they um, they really get uh, it, it's very tough for them to contend with the notion that Google. Because, I mean, it's everywhere on the web, but but it's kind of lurking in the background. And so we don't necessarily associate uh, targeted ads that we see on the web with Google. We tend to associate them with the websites that we're visiting mm -hmm. at the time, right? Whereas in Facebook, things that we see in the feed, you know, that, that strike us as creepy uh, or too personal, or we, you know, we tend to associate with Facebook. So I think just, yes, Facebook being a walled garden affords them a lot of advantages in terms of data collection, but, but it's a, it's a double-edged sword. You know, it also exposes them, uh, more directly in terms of what they know about us and allows us to kind of, associate you know see see more transparently the the result of that in terms of the ads we're served while we're busy browsing facebook as opposed to the the web in general even though a lot of that facebook ad content hits us when we're off facebook so, mm -hmm. yeah well and facebook at least in instagram i think also in facebook they're starting to to uh, offer you label that ability. a little more yeah. yeah label it and let you see why you're seeing certain ads and and uh and, and see those type of things you know and so and that greater transparency will definitely help facebook because there is this uh, you know sentiment uh around users that they they talk about something and then they see an ad and they immediately presume that yes, Alexa was listening to me, or Google Home was <laughs> listening to me, or you know, yes, it's reading my my email, which which it is in some instances. But um, you know, and so having that transparency, I think, will will help dispel some of those fears and also help position uh, the the platform in a more robust way and in a more solid way. You know, we also we also hear Zuckerberg wringing his hands about how complicated a lot of these, you know, credibility and ar you know arbitration of of information uh, challenges are. And you contrast that with an announcement that Google made, I think, this week. You know what they said? We're just not going to run political ads uh, as as we get closer to the election. I thought that was brilliant. Now, mm -hmm. uh, I think there are some implementation challenges. You know, what do you really consider a political ad? You know, if it's not labeled clearly or if it's, you know, something sneakily, you know, designed to foment opinion one way or another on, on, a, on an issue that ultimately ties back to a candidate. But, but to just come out and say, look, we're going to say no, at least to that explicit revenue source, and that is going to solve, you know, a lot of these, uh, I, I think it's going to go a long way to address uh, a, a lot of the problems inherent in political advertising online, I think Facebook would uh, just it, it would do wonders uh, for where their reputation is right now if they would make a similar pledge. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it, and you see it, and Twitter would probably benefit as well because mm -hmm. they both do this hand wringing where they're like, "Oh, these are really hard, complex." Uh, issues and then they seem to make 
arbitrary decisions that that aren't following a you know a right. set pattern and so uh, google has just said we're out of that market well at least um, for now yeah yeah at least for yeah. now and we'll see how well to your point how well they how well they do that um other you know other news from facebook this week was that they are expanding access to their patreon competitor um and uh, any thoughts on that, Ross? I, I think it's just been a tough business to make work. I'm, you know, Patreon yeah. is a challenge business. Uh, uh, I've got a, a friend, Brian Alvey, who tried um, launching a, a similar kind of business. You know, and and actually, when he wound that business down, he did a, a, a very illuminating write-up about why Patreon's business is so challenged. Uh, so, sure, ne- none of those guys have it on the scale of Facebook, um, but uh, it, I think it works if you're focused on a particular medium. And we've talked about YouTube stars a lot, right? But I think it's it's difficult to make it work in sort of this general patronage model, you know, it's just to support people doing all manner of stuff online. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, it, it works, right? If you think of the long tail of content, it works for the, the short end of that distribution. Mm-hmm. So where you have cult followings, you'll get people willing to pay $4.99 to support that artist or, or that writer. Uh, or to get early access to content or to get additional content. Um, and in some instances, that will be enough to support that individual, uh, you know, and, and in others, it won't be. And in many of those cases, it won't be enough to, you know, to support them financially. And so it, it works well for part of the, dis- you know, part of the distribution. And I, I think it also works as sort of like an initial push, like in Kickstarter. I think I think the Kickstarter model works when there's no scale, and I think the Patreon model works. You know, these ongoing payments once a a content producer has achieved scale, right? You're not going to achieve scale through Patreon, but if you if you already have an audience, that is a mechanism by which you can monetize. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, just one other thing we were talking before we started to record about uh, about Facebook. I was in Japan last week, and I yes, mentioned Sean. That, you you uh, gotta you gotta tell folks about how you were on the run. So, yeah, so I, so I went to Tokyo to um, to run the Tokyo Marathon. That's a it's a really heavily subscribed marathon. So there's about four hundred thousand people or so that apply to get in and and uh then they take about twenty eight thousand runners or so wow. so since i got in and my number was picked i figured i better take i better i better run with it while i can so to speak uh, yeah yeah pun intended so uh <laughs> so went out there and uh and then while i was out there spent the week out there uh catching up with all things japanese and um uh so while i was there you know i was talking with different business owners, small business owners, and they were saying how important Facebook is to them and and specifically Facebook Messenger for getting in touch with potential clients. And and I've seen that same thing here in the U.S. So uh, it's it's something that I feel is missed in some of these very big, broad conversations like, you know, the delete Facebook um, 
message and, and kind of that whole push is that there are a tremendous number of small businesses that that do heavily rely on Facebook and successfully rely on Facebook, that it is a way that they connect with their clients, that's a way they find new clients, uh, especially if you think about service-oriented businesses that operate within small geographic mm-hmm. markets. Uh, when that starts to get shared among those social networks um, of people that live in that area or affiliate with that service and have friends who have similar interests, that it uh, ends up being a very powerful tool for you know for some of these small businesses. So to me, um, that's kind of one of the unsung heroes of the the Facebook platform, and one of the things that will help keep it alive is that uh, it is really a, a big push for small businesses, at, at least for now. Now, we also saw this week that Edison Research estimated Facebook has 15 million fewer users in the U.S. today compared to 2017. And the, the biggest drop, of, unsurprisingly, comes in the, in the age cohort of 12 to 34. And, uh, you know, I think for me... I would probably fall into a group of less engaged users. And I imagine that is uh, significantly larger than 15 million as people are, are not moving away from the platform, but they're using it significantly less. So that's definitely one of the big headwinds that the, the platform faces. And that's a dilemma for them, right? Because yeah. they that's what they have thrived on, the engagement and you know, the best way to drive engagement is through things that elicit emotional reactions. So uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge. But yes, well, it, it's, go ahead. And I, I think that's where I see them moving in this kind of trying to push all of these Patreon-like services. And, mm-hmm. and whether this one succeeds or fails, they're definitely moving in direction of how else could we diversify uh, the the type of things that we're we bring to market. I mean, our, obviously, Oculus is um, kind of going back to VR and AR, a way of diversifying the the platform and diversifying the portfolio. To, and to your comment, it's probably an extension of that. Mm. But it, if that becomes a key platform for commerce, then it allows Facebook to pivot from advertising to to commerce and that's what some of these other moves could also do you know do for them when well, i look at some go of ahead. The younger generations like gen z they definitely foresee being able to shop in a virtual environment and so well we we're not doing that today we might be doing that in in 10 years oh yeah i, w- I would definitely put that in in the long pet bucket uh i mean we were talking earlier about uh what is the installed base of HoloLens? And, you know, as, as exciting as it is, uh, Microsoft hasn't sold very many of them for a number of reasons. Price really packaged more for developers uh, at this point. And I'm sure, you know, there are many more Oculus uh, kits out there. But uh, Microsoft, you know, has a, a real model for HoloLens right now, even yeah. if they're not directly monetizing it. Uh, Oculus, you know, they talk a lot, and I think we talked about this a bit uh, when Facebook had their last Oculus 
developer conference, uh, that they, they have a grant, they certainly have a grand vision for it, you know, including many of the things you just said. And then when it comes to actually speaking to the developers, it turns into GDC, you know, it turns into a game developer conference yeah. and it's all about, you know, game development. So, uh, that's such as the paradox right now of, uh, of VR and, and Oculus in particular. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Well, let's shift now to a quick lightning round. We thought we'd cover three topics in our lightning round. We'll cover uh, Huawei first in the mm. news, it's coming out and suing the uh, U.S. government. Your quick take on that, Ross? Uh, I, I think this is a simple one. Uh, I, I think it's it will be good for them from a PR perspective because I think it will be difficult for the U.S. to uh, pin down exactly what evidence it, it has against Huawei, uh, which, of course, says the U.S. has no evidence. Uh, however, I think ultimately, based on legal precedent, and I am, of course, not a lawyer, uh, they, they will not win the case just based on the uh, precedent of the uh, Kapersky uh, lawsuit, which was, which was quite similar. Uh, yeah, so I wonder if it helps them in Europe, though, and if this helps mm. kind of maintain and strengthen their position in Europe. So it's more of a European story than a story about trying to win over the U.S. market and win U.S. confidence. It's designed to keep European confidence. Right. If they can cast doubt on the veracity of, of the U.S. claims – then they they have a stronger pitch in the markets where they're already established. I, I yeah. agree with that. Yeah. Uh, second topic today: Nubia's new concept device, a foldable phone that wraps around your wrist. We saw it released at Mobile World Congress, or I should say MWC Barcelona. <laughs> um, your take on on the foldables? Yeah. So they're like, uh, hey, you know. Uh, a, a big tablet-like thing isn't isn't the only application for foldable screens. So I think this was actually the second prototype that these guys have shown, uh, and we've we've seen other let's call them cuffs, right? Because they're they're really more uh, they're, they're they're bigger devices. They have far more screen area than what we would consider a smartwatch today. Uh, look for now, novelties. I, I think it raises some interesting. Uh, category issues around whether the functionality of a smartphone will ever be able to be captured substantially by a smartwatch. I'm inclined to say it will be, uh, at least in conjunction with something else, be it voice commands or AR mm -hmm. or something yeah. like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, certainly, certainly very early. Uh, did you get a chance to look at this thing or uh, it's... It yeah, and it, and it definitely tries to fit into that space and and almost play between our the smartphones as we know them today and the wearables as we know them today, and maybe yeah. this is a, a bit of a hybrid category. It's it's interesting though when I when I watch younger generations using the smartphone as a, as an indication of where the technology will take us. You know, I'll see kids. Uh, K through 12, leaving school. And in the, the past, you know, when I was a kid, we'd walk home as a group. Uh, and now I notice they, they tend to walk by themselves and they're all on their smartphones. They're listening to music and they're, 
and they're doing things on their smartphones. Right. And, and, and they tend to be more mobile by nature. Younger generations throughout history have, have been more mobile than, than older generations. Um, I have a hard time envisioning in those environments wanting to use voice uh, and wanting mm. to, to speak. Um, and so while I'm a big believer in voice user interfaces and, and see the promise and the technology has improved significantly, uh, I question um, how much it will be using it in that traditional smartphone space. So uh, when you say that, do you mean sort of in the Hey Siri uh, context, or do you mean kind of the traditional model of holding something up to the side of your head, uh, which, which has sort of been the yeah. organizing principle for cell phones from day one? Sure. So, I mean, the younger generation, Gen Z, they're not using smartphones for telephony services at right. all, really. Right. Um, and, and even older generations aren't using it for telephony services um, very much. Um, so I, I don't, you know, see that being a, a key issue for them. Um, I see them using it, you know, it's the kind of, hey, Siri, hey, Google, hey, Alexa model that um, I, I don't know that if, the, I don't know how well that will translate to a mobile environment where they're they're on the go. I think it does if you're in a, if you're stationary, like in a car. I think that. Oh yeah, it's great for that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know how great it will be for the the mobile environment, and so, mm. um, so that's to me a headwind against being able to push all of this computing into a, a wearable, whether mm. it's a foldable screen that wraps around your wrist, or you know a, a pure play watch. Um, I think there's you know still going to be a desire to tap things out as opposed to have to say them out out loud and mm -hmm. i you know i look at even my kids when they want to text mom they will borrow my you know they'll borrow my phone they, they'll say something like hey i want to i want to ask mom a question um and they'll take my phone but rather than just calling her they'll text her mm, from you right. know from my account <laughs> so um and that's their kind of where they're predisposed to and so i don't know that even doing voice to text is something that that they will want to do. They right. they like that privacy um, component of being able to just write it out as opposed to to say it out. And maybe they see that as as quickest. I don't know. Maybe it's right. a, a speed issue as well. I, I think I think we need to promote this to a to a main topic for for a future podcast. Yeah, 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 a lot yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah. good stuff there. Okay, probably, probably went over so, our lightning spo round. Spo spoiler alert for this one though. It's it's a little clunky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, so and, what's and our? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I would just add, like everything foldable is going to look and feel clunky for the next <laughs> couple of years, right? I mean, that, that will. Uh, we are in the very early days. Of, sure. Of that, and and it's important to recognize that you know we got our first smartphone in '03, and we got the iPhone in in '07, um, and we had obviously mobile phones prior to that. So we'll take several years before we we really get foldables to the point where it, it's a really killer uh, experience for the end user. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the final lightning round, Tim Cook. Tim being Apple. Yeah, being referred to as Tim Apple <laughs> by President Trump. And then uh, in response, 
presumably changing his Twitter handle from Tim Cook to Tim Apple with the uh, Apple logo. Your quick take on this? He's uh, he's rolling with it, and uh, you know I I think uh, look Tim Cook has uh, always been about promoting uh, the company uh, above his his own brand, uh, and uh, you know he's uh, one of the reasons why he's a great CEO, and uh, you know this this kind of thing is priceless in some way. Uh, so they're uh, they're they're making the most of it and uh, and having some fun with it, which I, I really don't know what else you can do with it other than ignore it and pretend it didn't happen. So, and Apple did it in in classic Apple fashion, where it's extremely subtle. I mean, it was yes. very well executed. There's no none. Of, there's no tweets about it. You know, there's no comments about it. Just a subtle little change for those who are one for observing the fans. closely. Yeah. And then the other thing that they did about it was very Apple is that apparently uh, the symbol doesn't show up on Samsung phones. Oh, <laughs> so so you you have you have to have uh, uh, an Apple product to be in on the joke, uh, yeah. unless of course you're a tech expansive listener. Now now you know everything. That's so. right. Even right. even better. That makes it even better. Indeed. Well, thank right. you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of uh, TechSpansive. Again, I'm Sean Dubervac at Avrio Institute. You can also find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Don't forget to send us feedback and input on things you'd like to see us add to the podcast. Rate us wherever you download your podcast. And Please tune do. In Ne- tune in next week for another episode of Techspansive. <laughs> <laughs>